Yes. Ah, praise God. Amen. Amen. And give you an update as well from Earl's great-granddaughter. I got a text from him a day or so ago. Said she is home from the hospital and doing fantastic. So another, I answered a prayer there, so we're grateful for that. If you want to turn in your Bibles this morning, we're going to begin in 1 John chapter 2, picking up uh, on the message that we I didn't get anywhere near as far as I planned to get uh, last week. Uh, so we want to pick up in 1 John chapter 2. Again, just to kind of give just a short background, I really feel, I don't know if a burden is the right word, but I, I really feel strongly that the body of Christ is in a, a time and a season that we need to really take seriously where we are. I mean, we could talk about the world and the state that the world's in, but what I think is primary for us as the body of Christ is the state that the church is in and the state that we as individual believers are in. And, and as I said last Sunday, I had really hoped that in spite of all of the negatives that swirled around COVID-19 and the lockdown that we all uh, were a part of, that the extra time that so many had, uh, if you were able to have that time, that it would have been spent really pursuing God like we haven't pursued God in a long time. But from what I see around me and just what I sense and what I feel, I feel like the body of Christ is dominated by two primary reactions, responses, and emotions right now, one being fear and the other being anger, and neither of those are from God. And it's important for us as the people of God to understand that though we are, and, and someone, you know, everyone would say, well, I'm entitled to the way I feel, and I'm entitled to my opinion. Well, of course you are. We're all entitled to, to feel and think the way that we want to feel and think. But the Apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Otherwise, there's a lot of things that you can feel and say and a lot of ways in which we can respond. And is it permissible? Can you do that? Well, yes, but that doesn't mean that it's good. That doesn't mean that it's right. That doesn't mean that it's spiritually healthy. That doesn't mean that it's beneficial, and it certainly doesn't mean that it's pleasing to the Lord. So we talked about specifically uh, last week, starting with love. One of the most important things that we can do as the body of Christ is recognize that Jesus said the primary indicator that we are His, that we belong to Him. It's not the way we preach or teach or sing or the churches that we have, the buildings that we have or the ministries that we run or signs and wonders or gifts or miracles. He said the primary way that the world will be able to know that you're mine, the primary way the world will see you through me or, or him through us is the way we love one another the way we love each other love being the primary indicator and we shared from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where the bible actually defines from god's perspective what real love looks like and if you were with us or if you've read that this week you know that god's definition of love differs dramatically from hollywood's definition of love God's definition of what love looks like and, and feels like is totally different from the culture's definition of love. And if we're going to respond and, and do what God's called us to do, then we have to, to go by what He says is loving. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, you don't have to turn over there. 
But the Apostle Paul said to the church at Galatia that circumcision or uncircumcision is not the main thing. And when he's talking about that, he's talking about the rituals and, and, and the religious things that we go through. Otherwise, for our day and for our time, you could say it this way. The Apostle Paul said it's not really about the way that you worship because that was a part of their worship. So he said, guys, don't fight battles over whether you're what kind of music you're doing and, and whether you're standing or sitting, running, jumping. That's not what this is about. It's not about all of the, the rituals that you do in worship. He says what matters is faith working through love. He said all these other things, they may. I'm not saying they're not important at all, but those things aren't the primary things. What is primary is faith working through love. Well, why is that important? Because he said this is the victory that overcomes the world. If there is hope at all, the body of Christ is going to have to become what God's called us to be. We're going to have to overcome. The world's not going to make it easy. There is, I don't foresee any way or form that the world now is going to turn around and say, hey, guys, we, we realize that we have maybe been a little tough on the church, so, so here, we want to extend an olive branch. We, we want to make sure that you guys feel welcome. We want to turn back to the Judeo-Christian principle. Outside of the miraculous, guys, you do realize that's not coming. That's not happening. So if we are to overcome, it's going to be through our faith. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. But according to what Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, faith only works through love. So we can't miss this love thing. We have to get love right. And in 1 John chapter 2, and then we'll move on to my next point. But I want to, to share 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. It says, He who says that he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. He who loves his brother abides, stays, makes his home in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Isn't it amazing the parameters that God puts up? He said, here, here's a gauge here. If you say, it doesn't matter what you say. You can say, oh, man, I love God. Oh, man, Jesus is everything. Oh, man, Jesus is Lord. But he said, if you say that, but you can't love your brother, if you hate your brother, you're still in darkness. But he says, if you love your brother, then you're living and you're abiding in the light. So he's not even talking about how we treat the world. He's saying, guys, y'all are having trouble loving each other. You're having trouble loving people you're going to spend eternity with. And he said, guys, if y'all can't even get along with the people you're going to be spending eternity with, then you don't realize it, but you're still walking in darkness. There's still so much darkness in your heart. Now, I know that's not popular, and I know that's not comfortable, and I know that may not be convenient, but that is the Word of God. So if that's the Word of God, wherever we are not loving, we have to bow our knee to the Word of God. And if we're not willing to bow our knee to the Word of God in the areas that make us uncomfortable, then let me ask you, where are you willing to bow your knee? Because, you see, Jesus being Lord means that I bow my knee to Him. It means I'm completely, I'm willing to give my allegiance to him. That means when he says something in his word that I don't like and I'm not comfortable with, I don't try to justify what I'm doing. I bow my knee to what he said. So we start with love. The second thing, and I touched on it last week, but I want to spend some time on it today. And you can stay actually in 1 John and turn over to chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 of 1 John chapter 4. He says, Beloved, now that means he's talking to Christians. He's talking to the church. These are people in covenant with God. So he says, Beloved, 
Do not believe every spirit, but test, try the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many, not a few, many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, notice this, and now already is in the world. The Apostle John tells the church, believers, test every spirit. Make sure what you're putting your confidence in. Make sure what you're listening to. Make sure that what you're holding on to is the Spirit of God. Make sure, now, now I want to emphasize again, he's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers. So apparently he's concerned about the body of Christ being deceived by demonic spirits parading themselves as angels of light. All you would have to do is look in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're not going to turn over there, but verse 14, it's talking about false prophets and false teachers that would rise up from within the church and then go out deceiving. And he said it's no surprise because even Satan himself parades around as an angel of light. Otherwise, he's saying Satan don't show up to believers and say, hey, I want to destroy you. I want to steal from you. I want to kill. I want to do everything I can. Are you game? He doesn't show up and do that. He knows we're not going to respond to that. Here's how Satan deceives the church. He starts out by grabbing a hold of somebody and saying, thus saith the Lord. The Holy Spirit said to me, I was praying the other day, and here's what I believe I heard God God gave me a dream. Here's the dream. Now you're saying, well, pastor, are you saying you don't believe in dreams, visions, prophecies? Oh, no, I believe in all of those things. But I'm saying I don't believe that everybody who has a dream, vision, prophecy, or word from God is actually hearing from the Spirit of God. Matter of fact, I'm 100% sure of that because if that were true, then this would not be necessary. So what does that do? That puts the responsibility on me and you as children of God to not just swallow everything that somebody says because they have a ministry. Instead, we have to go to the Word of God and say, okay, that sounds great and it gave me goosebumps and everything and everybody else seems to like it, but does it agree with what God said? And if it doesn't agree with what God said, then we dismiss it even if the person who said it is on Christian television. You can say amen or oh me, it doesn't really matter, it's still the truth. There are all kinds of false prophets and false teachers out there. As a matter of fact, John said the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world in his day. It was already operating. So any spirit that operates against Christ and his character, Christ and his person, Christ and his plan, and Christ and his word is the spirit of Antichrist. I also want you to notice what he said. If someone confesses, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that person's of God. If they don't confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that person is not of God. It's a different spirit. Now, I want you to understand this. When he says confess, he does not mean that, okay, well, if somebody says, yeah, Jesus is, is, is Lord and Jesus has come in the flesh, well, okay, it doesn't matter what else they say. They're of God because they can't say that. No, in this time, 
And in this language, the word confess means come into a complete alignment and agreement with. It's more than just words. So it's not like I can look at a statement on somebody's website, oh, yeah, well, they got all that right, so they must be okay. No, no, no. Do they align their lives and their teaching to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Do they believe that Jesus is not only ruler and Lord, but Jesus is God in human flesh? See, one of the core doctrines of Christianity is that Jesus is, was, fully God and fully man. I want you to understand there was never a point where Jesus stopped being God. There are some false teachers out there saying that when Jesus came to earth, he stopped being God while he was on earth and operated fully as a man. That is false teaching. That is not biblical, and it goes to the very core of Christianity. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He became man when he stepped into the form of a human flesh as a, as a baby in Bethlehem. He's fully man today, 100%, and he has always been 100% God. And you cannot detract from the lordship and the, and the godhood of Jesus Christ and still align with the core principles. I'm talking about the core, basic, elementary principles of Christianity. We have teachers out there that aren't even walking in core principles of Christianity but because we get goosebumps and everybody follows them and they're on television and they write books, then people are following them as if they're walking and speaking truth. Try, test the spirits. See if they're of God. Now, I'm not saying this so we can be afraid because verse 4 says this. You, Christian, you are of God, little children, and you have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Turn over with me once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I want to read the first few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now we know the rest of the chapter, he's going to be talking about what love looks like. But in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me Nothing. Now, I want to ask you, and I just want you to think, if you were trying to, to gauge a good church, what would be what you looked for as a sign? Boy, that's a church that's on fire. That's a church that's powerful. If a church had tongues and gifts of prophecy and signs and wonders, words of knowledge, mysteries, if they had the kind of faith that moved mountains, would you say, oh, boy, that's a church that's on fire? You don't have to answer because in many cases, unfortunately, that's exactly what we look for to gauge a church. And then the people who would say, well, no, I don't look for that at all. I, I'm not looking for that to see if it's a good church or not because I know I can be deceived by that. Many of those in that camp, the next verse would get. Because when we look at what a good church is, we say, well, they're, they're giving everything they've got to the poor. They've got all kinds of outreach ministries. They're doing all kinds of ministries and all kinds of stuff out. And that's got to be a good church. Maybe. See, I'm not saying these things are not in good churches. 
What I'm saying is these things alone do not define good churches. Neither do they define a spiritual Christian. Because here, according to the Apostle Paul, you can do all of those things without love. And if you're doing those things without love, he said two things about you. You are just being noise in the atmosphere, and you're profiting nothing. Isn't that amazing? But I don't know about you, but that blows my mind. Because everything, if you read the, the, the word of Jesus to the seven churches in Asia Minor, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, not all of those churches, but particularly the church at Ephesus and some of those other churches, you would look at them and you would think, this is a church that's alive and on fire because everything that's said about that church in Ephesus looks like a church we'd love to be a part of, and yet the Lord's word to that church was, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Repent and remember the first works and do it quickly because unless you repent quickly, notice, Jesus is not just a little concerned about the church. He says, unless you repent quickly and do the first works, I will remove your candlestick, meaning I will remove your influence. This thing about loving people and loving God and knowing that we're walking in the truth of God's word, it's a big deal to God. It's a lot bigger deal than it is to most of us, and that's sad. And one of the reasons I'm saying this is because when I was sitting there praying, one of the second thing that came to my mind is we have to beware of deception. Deception, by far, is one of the greatest warnings that's given again and again about the last times. And it's given to the church. And I think that's the thing we've got to remember because most of us think about deception in the last times and we're always thinking about non-believers. We're always thinking about unbelievers. Well, yeah, they're going to be led astray. They're going to follow the Antichrist. They're going to get the mark. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. We don't think about the church. And yet most all of the warnings about deception, and there are so many of them in the New Testament, Jesus talked about it. Peter talked about it. Paul talked about it. John talked about it. They all talked about deception. Beware of deception. Beware of false prophets. Beware of false teachers. Beware of lying signs and wonders. Beware of these things in the last times. He's, they are always talking to the church. Every time they're talking to believers. And I feel like I have never felt as strongly before in my entire 30-some-odd years of pastoring this body that one of the primary things I have to do right now is warn you against deception. I cannot lord it over the flock. I can't control who you read and who you watch and who you listen to. But I beg of you, if you have ever been discerning in who you're giving your ear to, if there has ever been a time to be discerning, it is now. Don't just listen to somebody because they're on Christian television. Don't just watch something because it's on the internet and everybody else who's a Christian seems to think it's the greatest thing that has ever hit the earth. Look at the Word of God and see if it lines up with the Word of God. Look at does it follow the character of Christ? Is it is it showing forth love? Is it showing forth integrity? Is it showing forth holiness? Do the people who are leading this ministry, do they walk in integrity? Do they well, they don't have integrity maybe, but boy, they got power. That's a problem. Because we've never been told to follow power. The Bible doesn't say that believers follow signs and wonders, by the way. The Bible says signs and wonders follow believers. And when we get those things mixed up and turned around, we're in all kinds of danger. And I say that specifically because we are a church who believes in signs and wonders. So even more importantly, it's important that we 
have a discerning heart. I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 4. And look with me at verse 23. I know you've heard this verse. You may even have memorized this verse at some point. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Guard or keep your heart with all diligence, for out of or from it spring or flow the issues of life. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Guard your inner man. Now, if we're going to guard our heart, a lot of people, when they think about, well, yeah, I want to guard my heart, they think about, well, I don't want to be hurt. So I'm going to put, you know, I don't want people to, to, to hurt me. And I guess I understand that, but that's not really the point here. He's talking about your inner man, that, that solar spirit realm inside of us. He's saying, make sure above everything else you guard that. Keep an eye on that. Put, put a defense around that. Make sure that you're very careful about what you allow into your inner being. Well, if we're going to guard our heart, that means we're going to have to guard the gates that lead to our heart. That means we're going to have to be very diligent about what comes in through the eyes. As the people of God, we have to watch what we watch. We have to be aware of what we take in. Because whether we like it or not, whether we realize it or not, what comes in through here filters right on down into the inner man. It just does. It begins to affect how we think. It begins to affect how we view the world around us. So we have to guard what we see. We have to guard what we listen to. You know, over and over again, and I mentioned it last week, in the book of Revelation, it's in chapters 2 and 3, in the letters to the churches, we see this phrase repeated, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, and of course that means to incline your ear, to perk up, but it also can mean to bend your ear too. We need to bend our ear to the Spirit of God. We need to bend our ear to the Word of God. We need to be careful about lending our ears to things of the world, to the culture, to the spirit of the age. We have to guard what we hear have to guard conversations that we allow ourselves to. You know, there's a scripture in Proverbs, I believe it's in chapter 18. It talks about gossip specifically being like a choice morsel. It talks about how it just goes straight to the inner part of your being. That when you hear words that are putting someone else down, and by the way, well, how do I know what's gossip? I, 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 I try not to listen to it unless it's true. <laughs> that doesn't mean it's not gossip. Uh, can I tell you how you can define gossip? If the person that's being talked about is not in the presence where they can defend themselves, it's gossip, even if it's true. It's still gossip. And so the Bible says those kind of words go straight into our being. Otherwise, they bypass. They just go straight past the mind and the filter of the mind, and they go straight to the inner being, and they, began to, they begin to influence how you view. Have you ever had that happen? You, you have no problem with somebody. Man, you never really thought anything negative about somebody until you even without meaning to get in on a conversation about that person that's kind of negative. And then all of a sudden, you look at that person differently the next time you see them. Think, well, yeah, I guess I can see that. I never thought about that before. You know what? Maybe they're right. Never thought about that before. Never crossed your mind before until you heard that conversation. Now, it might not be true at all. And can I tell you something about gossip? 90% of the time, even if it's true, it's not the full story. 
Many times you're hearing just part. You don't understand motives. You don't know the heart. You don't know what's happening. There's all kinds of details you're not sure of. And so what's important for us is if there's a problem that we have. Do you know God gave us a prescription as believers for how to deal with issues with other believers? Uh, it's not fun, but it's the way God said to do it. He said if you have a problem with another believer, he didn't say go talk about it or have a prayer meeting where you tell other people what you think that other person's doing. He says when there's a problem with another believer, go directly to that believer and talk about it. See if you can fix the problem. If you can't fix the problem, if the other person is not willing to fix the problem, then you take another believer with you, preferably someone who is maybe a spiritual leader within the church, and you bring them along. And you once again try to bring restoration and reconciliation. Notice the goal is always reconciliation and restoration. Not so that that person will agree with you or, or think like you think. You just want restoration, reconciliation. So you go and you try to bring that restoration. If then that person still won't hear you, and the, the, then you bring the person before the body of Christ. You bring them before the church. And if it's a big enough deal and they won't hear the church, then the church has to say, well, listen, you can't be causing division within the body of Christ. Now, you don't ever see that done anymore. But did you know that's the New Testament pattern for taking care of problems between Christians? Never is it the New Testament pattern to go and talk to somebody else about a problem. And every time that happens, it goes straight into our heart. We're not guarding our heart. We begin to see each other differently. Guard your eyes. Guard your ears. Guard what conversations you hear. And guard your mind. This is where the enemy loves to do battle is in the mind. That means you, that's where this teaching comes in. We have to really be careful what we're hearing because it just goes straight in. We've got to let the filter of what we take in be the Word of God and the character of Christ. You know what? People, Christians get all up in arms about that, and I will never understand that. Here's what I'm telling you. This is it, okay? This should not be controversial. Let the filter for what you allow into your life be the Word of God and the character of Jesus Christ. If you can't handle putting a filter of the Word of God and the character of Christ on the teachings that you're listening to and the writing that you're taking in, then there is a much more serious problem than you being upset with me about me encouraging you to be careful about what you hear. So it's very important for us to guard our heart. Why is it so important? Jesus said it's from the heart that the tongue speaks. Otherwise, what we let in on the inside of us eventually begins to come out of us. So we have to guard our heart, and especially in this age. And along with guarding our heart, watch your words. And that includes your post, for those of you who are always on social media, because those are your words. It amazes me that just because somebody posts something on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, that, or, or whatever the case may be, that they think it's not the same as if they had a conversation and said those things to someone face-to-face. -face. Not only is it the same, it's actually in some sense of the word far worse because once you put that statement on Facebook, it's out there for not just you and that person to discuss. It's out there for everyone to see. So watch your words. Matthew chapter 12, verse 37, Jesus says this. He says, by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. I know we don't like that verse. That's why we don't preach on it very often. But Jesus said it. 
if it's in your Bible and you have words of Jesus in red, they're red. Because those are the words that Jesus said. By your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you'll be condemned. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21 says, The power of life and death is in the tongue. How many of you have ever had a relationship that was killed by something you said and you really wished it wouldn't have been? You didn't intend for that person to ever hear what you said? And you didn't intend for them to take it the way you said it. But those words killed that relationship. The power of life and death is in the tongue. We have to watch what we say, and that includes watching. What my wife and I today, just, just a little aside, this morning I was, I was looking at a, a post, and it was just one of those stats that you see flying around everywhere. Everybody's got all kinds of stats everywhere about all that's going on. And I was looking at it, and I was making a comment to Tammy. I said, wow. Well, you never hear this anywhere. This is kind of, she said, well, can you rely on that? I said, I don't know. I'm seeing it all over Facebook. Now, I know better than to say that. But, uh, but I said, I don't know. It's everywhere. And it's not just, you know, I mean, it's everybody seems to be saying it. So, so Tammy said, well, let me Google it. And all she did was just a real quick, just, I mean, took like two seconds to do a fact finding. I'm not talking about the fact finders on Facebook because I know everybody, oh, we can't trust. I'm talking about just a real quick two second look up and see if this is real. And the, the stat that was given was exactly false. It was completely opposite of the truth, and yet it's all over Facebook right now. And it's not true, not even close to being true, and it takes a two-second Google to find out that it's not true. People are, we're, we're just throwing things out there on Facebook, and we're not even willing to take the extra two seconds to five seconds to do just, I'm talking about minimal research to see if what we're saying is even the truth. Now, that's one thing if we're posting a stat. It's another thing entirely if we're saying something about somebody. You see, those stats aren't going to destroy somebody's character, but your words will. And so we need to be careful about our words. Something else we need to be sure about our words is that our words show forth the light of Jesus and do not distract from them. You might be quick to say, well, I never say anything and I never post anything that's not the truth. And that may even be true. I hope you're checking that to be sure. But even if you are and it's true, you can say things that are truthful and still say them in the wrong way and be destructive to the kingdom of God. Because you see, sometimes we can say things that come across in a way that are nothing like Jesus at all. And that doesn't mean you can't say unpopular things. Jesus said a lot of unpopular things. But if you'll watch real closely, when Jesus said the harsh and unpopular things, he never said those things to unbelievers. When he was talking to unbelievers that didn't know him at all, he was always, look look at the woman, I, I mentioned this yesterday, look, look at the woman who was caught in the midst of adultery. I mean, she was caught in the act of adultery. And under the law of Moses, she was supposed to legally be stoned to death. And so the accusers, they bring her in. I've always thought it was interesting. If she was in the act of adultery, they had to have been another person. They didn't bring the other person. They just brought the woman to Jesus. But they brought the woman to Jesus. I also always, always thought it was interesting how they knew and what they were doing to find out. Think about that for a minute. They, they were there, but they brought, apparently they did no wrong, and so they brought this woman, and they threw her before Jesus mercilessly, and they said the law says this woman should be stoned to death, and they were right. That's what the law said. So Jesus didn't say anything. The Bible says he started to write in the dirt with his finger. I would love to have known what he said. Some theologians just think that maybe he was writing the sins of everybody who had brought her to him. 
I don't know. We, we don't know that. It's just a thought. But whatever it was, he was riding in the dirt. And then he said this, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, the stones began to fall to the ground, and the people walked away until finally it was just Jesus and the woman that was caught in the act of adultery. And he looks at her and he said, Woman, where are your accusers? And she says, They're not here anymore. And Jesus says this, He says, Neither do I accuse. Now let me ask you a question. Was adultery wrong? Absolutely. Was adultery sin? Absolutely. Did adultery under the old covenant deserve her being stoned to death? Absolutely. But Jesus, to her, said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. Notice this, though. And sin no more. Two things there. He called it sin. So he wasn't afraid to call it sin. He wasn't afraid of offending her and saying it was sin because it was sin. But he didn't condemn her. He let her go. He said, just don't do this anymore. Don't sin anymore. However, when you see Jesus dealing with Pharisees and Sadducees who were the religious leaders that didn't care about the people but only cared about their own prestige, you can see him being very harsh. He'll say things like, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look like you're alive, but inside, you're full of dead man's bones. He even got stronger than that. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you brood of vipers and snakes. Why are you even here coming? You, you, he even... <laughs> He got very strong. He went in one day with a cord, uh, you know, a whip that he had made himself. Can you imagine Jesus, this man of great compassion and mercy, sitting in the, in the marketplace of the temple? What's he making over there? What's he doing? Man, that looks like a whip. I don't know for sure. Oh, it can't be. That's Jesus. No, he got a whip, and he went in, and he turned over the tables of the money changers, and he drove them out. And he says, you've made what is my father's house. It's a house of prayer and a den of thieves. And he turned over the table. Jesus could be very strong with what he said, but notice who he was strong with. He was strong. If Jesus was right here in his physical form, do you know who he would be the harshest with? I can guarantee you it wouldn't be the person out there who's strung out on drugs. It wouldn't be the person who's caught up in some type of perverse sexual situation. Does Jesus think that's okay? Oh, absolutely not. It's a sin and it's destroying those people. And he would point it out, but he'd do it with all kinds of love and mercy because people who don't have a relationship with Christ can't have freedom until they get a relationship with Christ. But when he, where he would be the harshest is when he came into our churches. And when he came into our churches and he saw false teachers and false prophets perverting the word of God for their own profit, he would be turning over tables and he would be crying out and he'd say, Woe to you, you brood of vipers, you hypocrites. You're standing in the way. What you're saying and what you're posting and what you're doing is making it harder for the people who I love to come and find freedom to me. You need to repent. How do I know that? Because that's what Jesus did. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So guard your heart and watch your words. Turn over to James chapter 3 real quickly with me. James chapter 3. You don't have to take my word on any of this. That's why I'm giving you scriptures. I do want you to look at the scriptures, though. In James chapter 3, beginning in verse 2, he says, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word... He is a perfect, whole, mature man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they're turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue 
is a little member that boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. That's pretty strong right there. Jesus says about our tongue. He's talking to believers here. Your tongue is a fire. It's a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among the members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and can be tamed by mankind, but no man, and that's a key word, man, no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. When I say watch your words, this is why I'm saying it according to the apostle, according to James, he's saying to you that your tongue is, can be full of deadly poison. It's dangerous. We have to watch our words. It says no man can tame it. So it'd be real easy to say, well, if no man can tame it, then there's no hope. It didn't say that God couldn't tame it. The Holy Spirit can tame it. And you know, the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness. What's the last fruit that's identified? Self-control. So when we walk in the Spirit, we allow the Spirit of God to control our life and our temperament. It can give us self-control. He goes on to say this, With the tongue we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness or similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, notice again he's talking to Christians, My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh we have to watch our words if we're to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth we can't in one moment be praising god and talking about how great god is and the next moment be shooting down our brother or be speaking with unforgiveness and bitterness towards someone who we're trying to bring to christ that's going to help a whole lot you think it's important for us as the people of god to watch our words to guard our heart. Just a couple of other things and we'll close for today. Faith and presumption are not the same thing. By definition, presumption is an idea that is taken as truth, built upon for actions, views, and responses, although it is not known for certain. Let me say that again. Presumption is an idea that's taken to be truth. It's built upon for actions, views and responses although it is not known for certain so all he's saying there is we need to be careful presumption is just taking something to be true even though we're not sure that it's true we haven't done our due diligence we haven't checked it out on the other hand faith biblical faith is resting in complete confidence on the character and the word of Almighty God. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Now, your faith is only as strong as the object that you place it in. That's why the next time you hear a teacher say that you should have faith in your faith, turn it off. Oh, I know. That sounded tough, didn't it? Well, I, I, so-and-so teaches that. I know they do. 
That's why I'm telling you, the next time you hear somebody say, put faith in your faith, don't do it. That's not a good enough object to put your faith in. You better be putting your faith in God and His Word. Put your faith in God and His Word. Your faith is only as strong as the object upon which your faith is placed. And if your faith is on anything or in anyone other than God's character and God's promise, your faith will fall. And it's important for us to know where our faith is placed and not walk in presumption. Presumption is this, and I've I've read this story. I actually heard this. It blew my mind. That, you know, we read in the Bible where the Apostle Peter walked on the water to Jesus. And he was able to walk on the water for a little while. There have been countless stories, even some recent, about some who are caught up in movements of the Holy Spirit and decide, hey, if Peter walked on the water, I can walk on the water too. And they go out and they try to walk on the water themselves. And, of course, they don't do that. Now, supposedly, some of them have done it. I don't quite frankly buy it. But supposedly, you say, you mean you don't? Well, well, brother, so-and-so said that. Do you mean that you think he could be telling something that's not true? Uh, Yeah, absolutely do. I don't believe everything that I hear a preacher say. I hope you don't either. I hope you take everything I say and take it to the Word of God. But here's the thing. For me to go out to Kentucky Lake and decide that I'm going to jump off at the deepest point because Peter walked on water, I can walk on water, and that shows my faith. No, it does not. It shows my foolishness because that's not faith. That's presumption. Do you know why Peter walked on the water? Because Jesus said he could. Peter asked and said, if that's really you, Lord, tell me and I can walk on the water to you. And then Jesus said, boy, don't forget this part because that's the key. Jesus said, go ahead. And then Peter got out and walked on the water. And even then, when he got his eyes off of Jesus, he sunk and Jesus had to rescue him. The only thing that enables you and I to do the supernatural is because we're doing it at the command and based upon the promise of the Word of God and carried along and anointed by the Spirit of God. If what you think you're doing for God is not based upon the command and the promise of the Word of God and is not anointed and carried along by the Spirit of God, you will fall flat on your face even if somebody in the Bible may have done that at some point in time they did it at the command of God you better make sure that's why you do besides that why do you need to walk on water if there's a bridge anyway to prove my faith well I would rather you prove your faith the way that James said to prove your faith you show me your faith by the things that you do You show me your faith by the way you love your husband or you love your wife. You show me your faith by the way you love your kids and the way you love your parents. You show me your faith by the way you live with integrity. You show me your faith by the way that you care about those who are hurting and you care about those who are needy. You show me your faith that way. James said, I'll show you my faith by the things that I do. Faith without works is dead being alone. Faith and presumption are two different things. Vengeance belongs to God. We need to leave it there. It's really important for our time. As I said, it feels like to me the church is kind of vacillating between two opposing spectrums, either fear or anger. And it seems to me that a lot of the church who's not given in to fear over what's happening or what's coming, it seems like a lot of them veer over into the realm. They're just mad all the time. They're just angry all the time. It's just anger, 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 anger. And the Bible says man's anger does not produce. Everybody repeat this with me. It is scripture, by the way. Man's anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Say that one more time. Man's anger does not produce the righteousness of God. 
Now, you're going to get angry, but the Bible says in your anger, do not sin. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, the apostles quoting the Old Testament, he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He's saying, don't, don't take out your anger and your vengeance upon your enemy. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Let's again look at some words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 6. Let's begin reading in verse 12. This is, of course, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says we should pray. This is his pattern of prayer. We should pray, God, forgive us our debts as, notice that's a connecting word, as we forgive our debtors. Now, usually we stop after verse 13 because that's the prayer part of it. But notice Jesus just kept on talking. And in verse 14 and 15, Jesus said, everybody, have you got words in red? Do you see those are red? I'm, I'm not trying to be facetious. I just want you to note this is what Jesus said. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. I know you would like for me to stop there. But Jesus didn't. He said, but, another connecting word, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Peter one time said, well, God, how often do I need to forgive? And there was a, an idea in the law that, you know, you only had to forgive up to so many times a day. And so Peter said, well, what, up to seven times? And he was actually going above and beyond what was required, so he thought he was doing good. That's Peter for you. Because he's thinking, you know, maybe I could forgive. And by the way, that's the, the reference is in the same day. So if your enemy does something that you need to forgive them for up to seven times in the same day, Peter said, I think I might could do that. Peter always thought kind of highly of himself. He always thought he could do a little bit more than, than what he could do. It's interesting what Jesus said. Because, see, the law said, or at least the tradition said, forgive up to this many times. Jesus said, Peter, I don't say unto you up to seven times. I say unto you 70 times seven. Now, I'm not a great mathematician, but I have done that. That's 490 times a day for one person. That doesn't count other people. So that means everybody who wrongs you, you need to forgive them up to 490 times a day. Well, nobody's going to do that. There's the point. Jesus knew that. So Jesus is saying it's not about how many times you forgive. It's just the idea is you forgive. You forgive other people the same way I've forgiven you, and the idea is that Jesus forgave us when we never deserved it. Jesus forgave us before we ever asked for it. Jesus just simply forgave us, and all we have to do is receive that forgiveness now. He said, I want you to forgive others in the same way that I've forgiven you. Vengeance belongs to God. That doesn't mean, and many times people will ask me, does that mean I have to forget it? Does that mean that I have to act like nothing ever happened? Absolutely not. For one thing, the only way you can forget something that somebody's done is if God supernaturally enables you to do so. You, you, you can't just choose to forget something. It's something God has to enable you to do. What forgiveness means is I'm choosing to leave the payment of the penalty for what has been done 
in the hands of God. I'm not taking it in my own. Because Jesus has forgiven me for what I did not deserve forgiveness for, I'm choosing by an act of my will and by faith to forgive you for what you may not deserve it for. And I will leave everything else in the hands of of God. Doesn't mean I've forgotten it. As a matter of fact, when Paul saw false teachers, when he saw somebody who was being harmful to the body of Christ, he said, mark such a person. You notice that, remember when we were reading in 2 Timothy, Paul called out by name a couple people. He said, Demas has forsaken me because he loved the things of this world. And so Paul wanted Timothy to know, beware of Demas. He even said, Alexander the coppersmith, and he called him out by name. He's been very harmful to the gospel. Beware of him. Be careful about him. That's not because Paul was carrying a grudge, but he didn't forget what they had done, and he didn't just trust them all over again. Forgiveness doesn't mean necessarily that you forget. That's a supernatural act. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you trust your, the person and you put yourself back in harm's way. Forgiveness means that you don't hold a grudge. You let God take care of vengeance, and you choose to love. But we are commanded, not requested, to forgive. And it's very important. I think now, like never before, the church needs to let vengeance be in the hands of God. Pastor, do you think everything that's going on is right and proper? Oh, absolutely not. Do you think some of the decisions that are being made are, are completely over the top? Well, sure I do. Does any of it ever make you mad? Oh, yes. I can't tell you how many posts I have deleted before I posted them. Some long ones, too. And if I say so myself, some of them are pretty good. But I've got the Holy Spirit and Tammy, and they both help me with that. Every time Tammy will see me on my phone and she knows I'm typing, I said, what are you doing? I usually kind of shyly I'm feeling led to, to, to do a post. Are you sure you need to do that? You better think about that. You might better pray about that. What are you posting? And after a while, I, you know, I can't help. I pray about it. And many, at least 70% of the time since COVID-19 has hit, I say, ah, and I start backing up the post. Why? Because vengeance belongs to God. I'm called to love. I'm called to forgive. I'm called to shine like a light and be salt in the earth. final thing I want to talk about today is pursue character over charisma. Pursue character over charisma. I want to go to what you might think is an odd place. I hope you'll understand why I go there in a minute. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I want you to read with me from verses 4 through 10. To give you a little background, there have been a lot of teachers who are apparently, according to what Paul said, they're sensational orators. They're great communicators. And they've gone into Corinth behind Paul and those who were with him. And they're trying to build up a ministry for themselves and a following for themselves. 
And in order to build up a ministry and a following for themselves, they're just kind of detracting from what Paul has done. They're kind of putting Paul down. And they're coming with all these glowing recommendations and all this long line of we've done this and we've been here and we've done that and God did that through us and God did this through us and we were over here and look what God did. And they had all this long list. We might call it today uh, a bio they had a bio, and the boy, it was full of all the accomplishments and all the things that they had done for God. And, and they were saying, you know, Paul didn't come with any of that. When he showed up, he didn't come with a bio. He didn't come with a long letter of recommendation. As a matter of fact, Paul said, I didn't come to you with excellence of speaking, but in the power of God. As a matter of fact, he said, I purposely was weak and trembling among you so that there would be no doubt that the power came from God and not from us. But in response to what he had heard from Corinth about these teachers and all their glowing recommendations and how does Paul, is Paul as, as, as good as they are? Should we listen to them instead of you? Here is Paul's response. Here's his bio. Here's what Paul puts down as his recommendation list. Verse 4, But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. Are you ready? Here's his bullet point bio list. Here's why you should follow him. In much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distress, in stripes, means he was beaten with a whip, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, in purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering or endurance, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere, genuine, authentic love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, because, you see, some people said good things about Paul and the apostles, some people said bad things. As deceivers and yet true, some people said they were deceivers, as unknown and yet well-known as dying, and behold, we live as chastened or disciplined and yet not destroyed or killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Now, if this was the bio of the guest minister that you were looking at possibly having, is that who you would choose? Let me just go ahead and answer that. At least on behalf of most churches in America today, their answer would be no. They'd discard that immediately. On the other hand, if somebody sent a bio about how many miracles had taken place at their last conference, how many people had come to the altar and been slain in the Spirit, how many signs and wonders were accomplished, and how many dreams and visions they had had, how many books they had authored, how many radio stations they were on, how many television stations they were on, and had a glowing list of all of the well-known popular ministers that endorsed what they did, then the church would, oh, man, can we actually get them here? Oh, you mean we can get them here? Isn't it interesting that Paul wasn't interested in any of that? Paul's list of recommendation all had to do with what he suffered for the cause of Christ and his character. That's why I tell you, choose character every time over charisma. Why? Because people can have charisma naturally and it have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. Come on, you've met people like that. I mean, some people are just good speakers, period. They can just talk. 
Some people are just good at what they do. It doesn't take an anointing. They're just good. That's what troubles me. And I'm going to chase a rabbit and we'll close. That's what troubles me about music today. And please, I love music. I'm on a two Christian radio stations and I've got my Spotify list and I listen to music all the time. I love worship music particularly. I love classic contemporary Christian music. I love all kinds of Christian music. I'll even listen to the occasional Sinatra music. You know, I just like music. That said, you do realize music can move your emotions, right? And not have anything about God in it, correct? Have you ever listened to a song that had nothing to do with God and cried? Have you ever listened to a song that had absolutely nothing? To, matter of fact, it could be anti-God, but it was nostalgic and made you feel good. Have you ever listened to a particular piece, even without words, music, and got inspired or felt better? I have. I've listened to some instrumental music, and man, I can just feel better. It just puts a pep in my step. And I'm thankful for that. But what bothers me a little bit is that many times Christians base the anointing. They think that what they're feeling in a moment of music is always anointing. Sometimes it's anointing. Sometimes it's just music. Sometimes what you're feeling when you read a certain book or you look at a certain quote or you hear a certain teacher, you know, oh, that moved me. Sometimes that's the anointing. Sometimes it's charisma. How many of you have been very disappointed in your life at times when somebody whose books you used to buy and messages you used to listen to, a news report comes across the screen and at first you absolutely cannot believe it and you think it's just the evil old media out there trying to pull a pastor down until finally they get in front of a pulpit and say, yeah, I did that and I'm sorry. And you think, my goodness, my goodness. That's the best preacher I've ever heard. It's the best messages I've ever heard. And then you start running the timeline down to when you were reading their book and listening to their message, and you realize they were living a double life while they were standing there preaching that message that you were feeling goosebumps about. Can I tell you something? Follow character over charisma. Let me say that again, because if we're in the days that deception runs wild, you need this. I know this isn't popular. I get that, but you need this. Follow character over charisma every single time. Now, if you are blessed to, to find a teacher that has both, then that is wonderful, and occasionally you can. If you're blessed to get in front of a worship band that has both character and charisma, there's going to be an anointing, and that is a wonderful thing. But make sure you're not just following goosebumps, emotions, and feelings. Make sure that you're just not in awe of somebody's ability to turn a phrase. Make sure that you're just not moved by an emotional response to somebody's innate talent. Make sure that you're following character over charisma. You say, well, I just don't understand why anybody would try to preach the gospel or do that and not really be sincere. Oh, I can tell you in a heartbeat, in the age of social media, all you have to do now is say something sensational enough and out there enough, you can build a following 
within literally 24 to 48 hours where it used to take a lifetime of building a reputation and building character. Now you don't have to have qualifications. Nobody, you don't have to have anybody you're submitted to. You don't have to have any accountability. And nobody even asks where you've been or where you or what you listen to or even what you believe. They just want to feel the goosebumps and see if they like what you say and see what it produces in people around you. And then you can build a following. That's why there are all kinds of people out there. Not long, we've had at least three that I can count in the last year alone of prominent Christian people, leaders in ministry who have not only fallen into sin but literally renounced their faith in Christ. They're saying they're not even Christians anymore. And we've been buying their books and listening to their teachings and they've been out there. What I'm telling you is follow character over charisma. I'm so thankful I had a good pastor growing up. He told me when I went into ministry, he said, before you ever have anybody in to speak in your pulpit, before you ever endorse a ministry, or even start reading from somebody, find out what church they're submitted to. Find out what pastor they are submitted to. Because if they are submitted to no one and they have no accountability, they may be all right, but they may not. You'd be better off following somebody who walks in submission, somebody who walks under authority. And I want to give you that same advice because it's some of the best advice I've ever had. It's kept me from all kinds of pitfalls. Make sure that you really do know the person that you're following. Make sure that you understand where they come from and what they believe. Follow character over charisma. I want you to bow your heads with me today. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for time together in your word. Father God, we thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace. We thank you for your presence that's been in this room. We felt you here this morning. Thank you for the peace, the encouragement that you brought to our hearts. And now, Lord, we just thank you that you are the author of this word. Through the Holy Spirit, you moved men to write, and you safeguarded its transmission. This is the word of God. It is our absolute standard of truth. And no matter what we feel or what we see around us, if it doesn't line up with this book, it's not true. And it won't bring freedom. It won't bring the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So, Father, help us to be a people who refuse to walk in presumption, but instead walk in true faith based upon who you are and upon the promise of your word. Help us to have ears that bend and lean in to your promise and your command, and your direction. Help us to let our grudges, our bitterness, our resentment, help us to let it go and forgive those who have misused us. Lord God, help us to leave vengeance in your hands. You're able to take care of that better than we are. Help us to be a people that look for character more than we look for charisma and giftedness. Help us, God, to always watch the things that we say and the things that we post because more than we would ever realize as your people that have identified ourselves by your name, we're portraying who other people, particularly those who don't know you, think that you are by the words that we say and even the post that we post. Help us to guard our heart. Help us to guard the inner man, our eyes and our ears and our mind. Help us, Lord, not to just allow anything and everything in, but help us to realize that what we allow in influences who we become, the way we think, the way we speak, the way we respond. And help us to beware of deception. 
And God, if in our lives we've allowed sketchy ideas, wrong teachings and wrong beliefs, even if a hundred other Christians are following those beliefs, help us to be those who would say, wait a minute, that's, that's not what the Word of God says. and That doesn't look like Jesus. That, that doesn't sound like Jesus. That's, I don't see that being what Jesus did. And help us to walk in love. Help us to live in love, to love you, to love others. That doesn't mean we have to agree with everybody about everything. It doesn't even mean that we don't occasionally have to confront things. We do. You did. But we always do it from a heart of love. We always do it with a desire for restoration, forgiveness, salvation. God, I pray that we would go to your word for everything. We would not go to our favorite teacher, but we would go to your word. That we would not go to our favorite author, but we would go to your word. Lord God, that we would come into your presence and spend time there and allow you to heal us, fill us, and change us, and transform us in Jesus' name. I just simply ask this this morning. First of all, if you're here and you don't have a relationship